We return this evening to the book of Hebrews, chapter 5. Hebrews, chapter 5. Two Lord's Day evenings ago, we dealt with the end of chapter 4, the beginning of this section, entitled in our Bibles, Jesus the Great High Priest. And we dealt with verses 14, 15, and 16. But you'll note, once again, chapter 5 comes in at rather an odd place. It's rather an odd break there, for the very thought continues. So we're still under that same understanding that we find in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who he identified as Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So we pick it up then at chapter 5, reading verses 1 through 10, which is our text for this evening. Hebrews 5, verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him was able to save from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. As far as the reading of God's word, let's again bow in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you that we can take this time to hear your word. We pray that it would be with Pastor Bob as he explains to us further, uh, as we learn more about how Jesus Christ is the supreme high priest. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So three things from this passage. First of all, the call of Christ's priesthood in which we'll consider verses 1 through 6. Secondly, the humanity of Christ's priesthood, which is found in verses 7 and 8 of our text. And then thirdly, the blessing of Christ's priesthood, which will bring us to verses 9 and 10. More specifically, just verse 9. So the call of Christ, Christ's priesthood. The point the author is making here is to remind these Hebrew leaders as to how someone became a priest. He has just said in that previous chapter that Jesus is a great high priest. 
And he's made the case that Christ is superior as a high priest to all other human priests. Now he's continuing that. And, and he's saying one of the ways in which Christ is superior as a high priest is because he has a superior call. Now in the Old Testament, priests were appointed. That's what he's telling us in verses 1 through 4. Priests didn't just demand to be priests. They didn't pay to be priests. They, they didn't, there, there wasn't an election for the priesthood. Priests in the Old Testament were appointed to the task. Now the reason why it became so serious is because this is a life and death issue. If the priest doesn't do his job, if he's not the one that God has appointed, the priest is going to die. So no one steps forward and demands to be priest. They're all appointed. And they're appointed by God. God appoints the high priest. Now you'll note in this section, there's no reflecting back to some Old Testament passage. There's going to be when he talks about Christ, but not with the Old Testament priest. He simply makes the statement he's appointed by God. Does he need to prove it from the Old Testament? No. Why? Because every Jew knows it. Every Hebrew knows and understands because they're so acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures, he doesn't need to point it out. He doesn't need, for example, to go back to Exodus chapter 28 and to show them and to quote for them. They know it. They're aware of it. There's nothing new to teach them here because this they have learned, they have been taught this since they were children. How does the priest get his job? He's appointed by God. You mean the king doesn't select the priest? No, king, king doesn't select the priest. How does that man get his job, daddy? God appoints. And his point is that the priests that are appointed in the Old Testament by God, come from Aaron. He makes this pretty well known to us, doesn't he? When he comes back to verse 4, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So as Aaron was appointed to the task, so every Old Testament priest is appointed by God through the family of Aaron. Every high priest that served from the time of Mount Sinai when the priesthood is instituted until the close of the Old Testament is to be appointed by God and one who is assigned or given that because they are a descendant of Aaron. Well, what about Christ? Christ being a great high priest, what about his call? How, how does Christ get called to the priesthood? 
Now, one of the things in, in reading about this particular passage uh, over the past couple of weeks is that uh, one, of the, one of the interesting points the commentators make about the book of Hebrews is there is, a set, there is part of the book of Hebrews that is written for the people's own instruction. But there's part of the book that's written apologetically. In other words, it's written in order to defend the faith. It's written so that when they encounter fellow Jews who are challenging them, and they say, but Christ is, is the great high priest. We don't need the priesthood anymore. We, we don't need Jerusalem. When we don't need the temple. We don't need those priests of Aaron any longer. And they say, prove it. The author of Hebrews is giving them the supply they need. You might say, well, what's that got to do with us? One point, what did we learn Wednesday night, folks? 1.3 billion people in this world follow a religious system of priesthoods. It's right in the face of Hebrews chapter 5. It's an outright denial of, of that which is before us. See, this is a primer for us too. I trust we all know Jesus is our high priest. I don't think I have to convince you of the fact that Jesus is our great high priest. But how do you deal with those people who challenge that idea? How do you deal with it with those that you encounter in life? Who may say, no, 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 we still need our human priest. Here's the primer. Here's the means by which it is done. So what about the call that Christ has received? Well, that also comes from God. It comes from the Father. And that's why he quotes that, that quote from in verse 5. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And notice what the author is saying. He's saying, so also Christ did not exalt himself. But he was appointed. He was appointed by who? By the Father. The Father has appointed the Son to be the high priest. But somebody will say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You might even say that to me tonight. You might even say, but Pastor Bob, wait a minute. You, you've just been in Matthew chapter 1. You, you were there last Sunday. You were there this Sunday. You made a big deal over the fact that, that he's a descendant of Abraham. He's a descendant of the tribe of Judah. He's not a Levite. That's what Aaron was. How can he be priest then? How is it possible that Jesus Christ could be appointed as a priest if he's not from the Levitical tribe and he's no descendant of Aaron? Aaron's name appears nowhere in Matthew chapter 1, does it? So how did he get to be high priest? What are we told? We are told he is a priest forever, not according to the order of priest, 
according to Aaron, but the order of priests according to Melchizedek. You see, every Jewish person knows who Melchizedek is. Every Jewish person knows that Melchizedek predates Aaron. We meet Melchizedek back in the book of Genesis. We meet Melchizedek during the time of Abraham. Now, I'm not going to go in a lot of detail because we're, we're going to come back to this in Hebrews. Okay, Melchizedek is going to come back, so we'll deal more there. But, see, the, the point is, is that the Jewish people understood there was another priesthood. Abraham, the father of the Hebrew people, actually gives his gifts not to a descendant of Aaron, but to Melchizedek. Christ's priesthood predates Aaron's. It's interesting that when we come to Melchizedek, there, there's the picture here of the fact that he, he has no father, he has no mother. Mentioned in scripture, he appears and he is gone. There, there is a sense here in which this, this picture of Melchizedek with Abraham is truly a picture of Christ. And the Jewish people are all like, oh yeah, Melchizedek. Now that, that was a priesthood as well. So if Christ is according not to the order of Aaron, which we know... Jews were meticulous at genealogy. They know you're not going to prove that. But he is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He is a legitimate priest called by God, appointed by God, just as every other Old Testament priest was. But he's called because he belongs to an order that is greater than the order of of Aaron. He's called to be the high priest. Secondly, author points out to us in verses 7 and 8 the humanity of Christ's priesthood. Listen again to those, these words in 7 and 8. In the days of his flesh, notice how, how now he's drawing us in. In the days of his flesh, notice it's not Christ now, it's Jesus. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. Now let's just pause there. Notice the language. What did Jesus do? He, what does the text say? He offered up. Now, that's not just some words that the author decided to use, right? How, how shall I say this? Oh, let's just say he offered up. Why doesn't he just say Jesus prayed? Because the term offered up is a priestly term. That's what the Old Testament priests did. The function of the priest was to offer sacrifices. Hebrews 5, 1 through 4. That's what the task is. What does a priest do? The priest offers up sacrifices. And as the Old Testament priests offered up sacrifices, 
So Christ offered up to God as well. Sacrifices for sins. Sacrifices for thanksgiving. But here, as the point will be made later on in Hebrews, the one sacrificing becomes the sacrifice itself. The priesthood is even greater because it's replacing an animal. It's replacing some sheep. It's replacing some cow. It's replacing some goat or some pigeon. Christ doesn't offer up an animal. He offers up himself as the Lamb of God. So he's saying, you see, in his work, As Christ was here, as Christ ministered, what did Christ do? He did the work of a priest in his humanity. As one of us, he offered up to God prayers, tears, himself as the atoning sacrifice. Now go to the text. What's the next line? And he was heard because of his reverence. And he was heard. See, the question in the Old Testament is always this. So the priest does his stuff, takes the sacrifice, offers it. Does God accept this sacrifice or not? In the sign of that which was done on the brazen altar, the smoke rising to heaven, the pleasing aroma of the sacrifice in the nostrils of God was thought to be the fact God is accepting the sacrifice. But the language that is going on here is pointing us to that day of atonement. This is, this is the greatest day of the priest's life every year, is the Day of Atonement. Because all the other days, he's offering sacrifices at this brazen altar, okay, over and over again. Every once in a while, he gets to go into that first little room, right? He gets to do some stuff in that first holy place room of the tabernacle. But only on that one day of the year does he... He get to go into that inner chamber, that most holy place. A most significant day. Because it's the day of atonement. It's the day signified and set apart by God himself that particular sacrifices would be made to cover all of their sin. And the question is, so he's going in. He's doing it. He takes the blood and he sprinkles it before that mercy seat and on it. Does God accept it or not? How do they know? How do you know? God doesn't write anything in the sign in the sky, I accept. Nobody gave him a sign. You know what the sign is? The priest came back out. If the priest lived, it meant God accepted the sign. It meant that, you know, you read through that Old Testament. And man, there were a lot of rules about these 
things, right? You had to follow things precisely. The Day of Atonement, especially, there's stuff about dipping your finger in the blood and you got to sacrifice, but you also had to offer sacrifices for yourself and you had to do it in the right order. You had to have the right offering. You had to have the right means. You had to have the right form. You had to have the right time. You had to do it precisely right. If you did not do it precisely right and you went into that most holy place, you're going to die. The fact that you came back out as the priest meant you did everything right and God accepted the sacrifice because you lived. Do you see the picture? Do you see Christ? Right? He goes in to the most holy place. He offers himself. How do we know How do we know that God accepts the sacrifice of Christ for all of our sin? Because he lives. He rose. He's alive. There's a resurrection. He gave himself as the sacrifice. And God says, I accept it. Here, here is life. It's like that that Old Testament high priest coming back out of the tent and the people see him and they rejoice. Ah, my sin. My sin, not in part, but the whole has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Why? Because Christ lives. He was heard. It was accepted. Is that better? See, is that better than the blood of bulls and heifers, sheep and goats? Is is that superior? Yeah, that's superior. That stands far above. In his humanity, he offered up the sacrifice of himself. And he was heard. It was accepted. Why? It was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect. Being made perfect. Why is it accepted? His reverence. His obedience. His perfection. See, every Jewish person knows... Every Jewish person knows that that priest, before he entered that most holy place on the Day of Atonement, had to make sacrifices for himself. He had to offer a sacrifice for his own sin. But Christ, in reverence, in obedience, in perfections, offers himself as the sacrifice to God. No sacrifice for himself is needed because of his perfection, his perfect sacrifice. No blemish, no stain, 
in that Lamb of God. The spotless Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The superior, the supreme high priest. You say, okay, you, you referenced Rome a little while ago. How does that work here? Well, let's just think about it. Okay? Let's just think about it. So I've committed some sin. I've got to go into this little box. And there on the other side sits a human priest who's going to tell me how to be absolved of my sin. He who has his own sin. He who has his own failures. He who has his own limitations. He who is imperfect is going to tell me what I must do to rid myself of the sins that I have. You spoke harshly with your wife, Sandy. Well, this is what you need to do. You, you need to say ten Hail Marys. How can he, an imperfect person, give to me the solution of my sin when he himself is sitting there in sin. The only source of perfection there is, is the perfect priest. The perfect high priest. Jesus Christ. The Son of God who has passed through the heavens who has been called and appointed by God according to the order of Melchizedek, who in his humanity offered up himself and he was heard, he was raised, he was resurrected because of his obedience. What is the answer to what I do with my sin? Turn to Christ. Flee to Christ. Run to Christ. Not some little trinket. Not some little act of kindness or goodness. Flee to Christ. What is the blessing of this? Verse 9. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey. Let's break it down just a little bit. He's the one who provides salvation. Only him. Only by him. Only through him. Only accomplished by him and only, and this is what you, if you're taking notes, you need to underscore. Only completed by him. My salvation is entirely the work of Jesus Christ. Remember the 
horrific doctrine we looked at Wednesday night? Christ only opens the door. Christ only makes it possible. You have to complete it. Could I ever complete my salvation? There's no way. I can never complete it because anything I would attempt to do is incomplete. It's sinful. The only one who can complete my salvation is Christ himself. That's why it says he is the source. From him all salvation flows. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. There is only one name given amongst men whereby they can be saved. And it's not Bob Van Manen. I can't save myself. I can't save you. And you can't save me. Only Christ. He is the source. It all comes from Him. It all emits from Him. It all pours out from Him. He is the source. Of what? Of eternal salvation. If you're in a habit of marking things in your Bible, that's the word to mark here. It's an eternal salvation. Not temporary. Now, Brad's not, I, I didn't okay this with Brad, but being a relative, you get used once in a while in this way. And I'm sorry to tell you this, Brad, but your heart surgery doesn't grant you eternal life. It extended life. But he's still going to die unless Christ returns. Right? We can have cancer and we can get treated. We can add more days or more years to our lives, but we're still going to die. The heart surgery was temporary. The cancer treatment was temporary. The dialysis is temporary. It only sets off for a period of time. That which will occur. But the salvation that Jesus Christ has merited for us is an eternal salvation. It's not temporary. It doesn't just last for a few hours or a few days or a few weeks or a few years or a few decades. It will last forever and ever and ever. To quote Daniel. It's not temporary. It isn't just to get you through this life. The salvation of Jesus Christ is forever. That guy in the box who tells me to pray the rosary ten times, how long does that last me? Right? If you stop to think about it, what would that last me? Tell my next sin, then i got to go back to the box again. And then what? i got to do something else. And then what? i got to keep coming back. i got to keep coming back. Christ provides. An eternal forgiveness. 
and eternal salvation. Not temporary. Secondly, in regards to that. We are made for eternity. We are created for eternity. Do you know that? You're, you're not made to last for a temporary time. You're not made to last for 40 or 60 or 90 years. You, you're not made to last that. You're made, you were created to last for all of eternity. Or your body, your tent, is going to wear out. But not your soul. Jesus is the source of an eternal salvation. Why? Because my soul is going to exist in eternity. It's going to either exist under the salvation of Jesus Christ or it's going to exist in hell. For all eternity. We probably are thinking back to, what was it, March 15 or February 15? And we might be saying, it's been an eternity we've been living under this. No, folks. No. No. It's been 10 months. It's not an eternity. Eternity, a lot longer. Hell, my friend, is not short. But here's the glorious truth. Heaven isn't short either. And because you and I have been created by God for an eternal existence, He provides for us an eternal salvation in Jesus Christ. Third thing. The work of this high priest, and this is really the point that the author of Hebrews is getting to. The, the work of Christ merits eternal salvation. That's the only thing God could grant. That's the only thing God can do. You know, we're going to come to a text a little bit later in Hebrews where it talks about that priest offers the same sacrifices day after day after day, and then he dies, and then we get a new priest, and we do this over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Why? Because it merits nothing. It was only a picture to point to Christ. It didn't really achieve anything. Only the perfect sacrifice of Christ. And God so treasures the sacrifice of His Son. In the nostrils of God, this is the sweetest smelling sacrifice that there is. 
a perfect sacrifice offered in complete submission, out of love, out of obedience, out of care, out of compassion. A perfect sacrifice merits an eternal salvation. That it would be any less to be any less than eternal is to negate the work of his own son. Our high priest provided an eternal salvation. Is that where the text ends? Look at that verse. Look at verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Keep your finger here. Go with me to Romans chapter 16. This beautiful doxology. Romans chapter 16. Now to, it starts at verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. See, that's what the author here is talking about, the obedience of faith. What is the obedience of faith? The obedience of faith is this, that we understand that by grace and by grace alone, you and I are able to say, I believe in Jesus Christ as the source of my eternal salvation. That is the faith of obedience wrought in our hearts by the work of the Holy Spirit, brought about by God's grace, creating within us the faith of obedience. To obey what? The faith to obey. Obey what? To believe in Jesus Christ, to believe in this great high priest, wrought not from my own heart, not from my own mind, but wrought out of the grace of God, creating within me a faith to look to Christ that says nothing, nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ can for my sin atone. See, it's not Bob going to church. It's not Bob reading the Bible. It's not Bob leading the Bible study. It's not Bob visiting some old people. Okay, that, that's, that's not the obedience that's talked about here. It's the obedience of the singular command to obey by believing in Jesus Christ. God's gift grace, God's gift of faith, God's gift of the work of the Holy Spirit. Before us then this evening is the reality of eternity. Your soul will live eternally. Oh, there's going to be a resurrection as well. 
But we don't know how long before that resurrection comes. But your soul will never die. It'll leave this earth at the moment of your death. You're going to find yourself either in hell or in heaven. The only means of waking in glory is the one source of eternal salvation, our great high priest, Jesus Christ. And if you're trusting in him, if you're looking to him in faith, the good news Our Savior has come. He offered himself and he was heard. Your salvation is accomplished fully, completely, totally, forever and ever and ever. But if you are trusting in anything else other than Christ, will not be waking in glory. How many times have we read it in the book of Hebrews? Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would work even now in the hearts of those who do not know you. Perhaps they're sitting here in our congregation tonight. Perhaps they're viewing over the live stream. Maybe they just stumbled upon this. Lord, as we learned this morning, you have a perfect providence. There's a reason for this word. It's either to confirm your judgment in the end or it's that gracious call of the gospel being ushered tonight to someone or it's the glorious hope, the glorious hope, Father, that we as believers have in the finished work of our high priest. In his name, God's people say, Amen.